I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and this is my 86th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that God has ordained a person's primary relationship to be between themselves and their own spouse, not with a mother or a child. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on August 7th, this uh, beautiful Lord's Day morning, and glad to see you all here. And Our text for this morning is from the Harmony of the Gospels, and it is Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, and Mark chapter 10, verse 35, which in the Bible says this. Then the mother of James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus with her sons and knelt in front of him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. And now our gracious and heavenly father, be pleased to please let us preach your word, not for fame or for reputation, but to the end that some might be made better, that some might benefit, that some might believe, that some might be saved. We thank you, Lord, for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and we ask you to let him feed us until we want no more. In the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you for listening and thinking with me as we study God's word to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Have you ever heard of a stage mother? The term generally has a negative connotation because a stage mother is known to obnoxiously demand special treatment for her child or place inappropriate pressure on her child to succeed. A stage mother may be vicariously living out her own dreams through her child. On the other hand, in professional performing situations in which children participate, children can't speak for themselves. Stage mothers represent their children. My mother was a stage mother when my brothers and I were little, but she didn't demand special treatment for us and was never obnoxious. Mom was a stage mother because we needed someone to supervise us when we went to performances. Mom did not spend her time berating the judges, but rather making sure we behaved properly. And we will use this information about stage mothers later in our discussion. But our episode for this week begins on a boat of a Galilean fisherman named Zebedee 
who had his two sons working with him as Jesus happened by. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18 through 22 tells us, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Sort of an abrupt exit, wouldn't you say? James and John stopped in the middle of fixing a net string and left their father in the boat just because Jesus called them. Why would they leave their dad like that? Because Jesus has an interesting reputation around Galilee. John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54 tells us, So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judah into Galilee, he went to Jesus and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to the nobleman, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to the nobleman, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as the nobleman was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign which Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Jesus' first sign to the Galileans was turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus' ability to liven up a party was discussed all around Galilee. But this second miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son, without even seeing the boy or going to the nobleman's house, was the kind of thing that would make young men working with their father in the family business decide to leave the family business to go into business with Jesus, the healer. Turning water into wine is one thing, but healing with just a word without even being there is another. So James and John followed Jesus, and they became Jesus' close associates. Matthew 17 records Jesus' episode on the mountain of transfiguration, in which Jesus was transformed into a figure of light, 
and held an audible conversation with the visible spirits of the lawgiver Moses and the prophet Elijah. Now, all the apostles did not observe these appearances. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Zebedee's sons, James and John, along with Simon Peter, were Jesus's inner circle. They were able to observe this great miracle and hear Jesus talking to the patriarchs of old. And you may remember that we talked about the resurrection of Jairus's daughter last week. The Bible gives this detail about Jesus' entry into the house in which the girl's body was lying in Luke chapter 8, verse 50 and 51. But when Jesus heard it, he answered Jairus saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When Jesus came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Once again, we see James and John on the inside, along with Simon Peter, while the other nine apostles cooled their heels on the outside. And our text for today tells us that James and John's mother Salome is traveling with the group. Zebedee was probably pretty lonely back at the boat because his two sons left him to follow Jesus and his wife left him to follow his two sons. Now, the relationship that should be primary between husband and wife is often fractures as the vicissitudes of family life impinge on the marriage. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But children almost always have the ability to come between a husband and a wife. At the birth of the first son recorded in scripture, the woman to whom Genesis 2.24 originally applied made an interesting statement. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 tells us, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. What? I thought that Adam was the man that Eve acquired from the Lord. But God has so designed women that when they bring a child into the world, the biological bond that forms between the woman and the child is often stronger than the volitional bond that the woman has with her husband. And this difference is biological. The bonding relationship that a woman has with her child through childbearing can stimulate a woman's oxytocin response more strongly than does the sexual relationship that the woman has with her husband. And that is a reasonable situation. Men do need their wives' help, as Genesis 2.18 tells us, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. But while it is good for men to have wives to help them, 
men can survive without wives. Infants, however, are totally dependent upon their mothers. In fact, without sufficient physical human contact, infants have been known to literally fail to develop even when given sufficient nourishment. Infants contract a condition known as deprivation dwarfism or failure to thrive because of a lack of tactile stimulation during their very early development stages after birth. A lack of physical contact can inhibit the activation of an infant's pituitary gland and cause the infant to fail to grow normally. The normative contact for infants is breastfeeding. And even if a woman uses a bottle to feed her child, the baby needs the mother or caregiver to hold him or her close to her chest to receive the needed physical stimulation. Thus, the differences in male and female anatomy and endocrinology exist by design specifically for the nurture of children. Thus, God created a reciprocal emotional and hormonal relationship between women and their children. Just as children need their mothers to cuddle them in order for them to thrive, God designed women hormonally with a physical need to bond to children. When Moses was lying in the basket floating down the Nile River and the Pharaoh's daughter looked at him and heard him cry, her endocrinological system was stimulated. She immediately felt the desire to care for the child, although she intellectually recognized that the child was not hers, was not even an Egyptian as was she, but was a Hebrew. Exodus chapter 2 verse 5 and 6 tells us, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Moses' sister was watching to see that which would come of Moses. When she saw the compassion of the Pharaoh's daughter for her little brother, Moses' sister offered to help the Pharaoh's daughter find a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for her. The Pharaoh's daughter agreed and actually paid Moses' own mother to nurse and take care of him until Moses was weaned from the breast and could be adopted. The Pharaoh's daughter had the opportunity to adopt Moses in the first place because her father, the Pharaoh, was hostile to Israelite male babies, commanding that they all be drowned. So you see the biological difference in bonding with infants between male and female. And it is easier, more intuitive, probably more stimulating, and certainly less argumentative in the normative case for a woman to bond with an infant than with a husband. And the intuitive ease of the bond between mother and child often deteriorates the marital bond between the mother and the father 
as the wife slash mother can allow the bond with the infant to expand to take up her complete capacity to bond. Even when the child is no longer breastfeeding and the woman's endocrine system is no longer being physically stimulated by the child directly, the memory of the stimulation remains as does the bond. My wife has announced to me that when she retires, we are moving to North Carolina. Now the climate in North Carolina is nice, but it is equally pleasant in West Virginia, South Carolina, and the northern part of Georgia. Why the fixation on North Carolina? Simple, our son and his wife are there. He is 30 years of age and married, but the memory of the bond between mother and son lasts for life. And I appreciate my wife for planning to take me along with her to her new place of residence. When James and John decided to leave Zebedee and Salome to go on the road with Jesus, Salome was concerned and conflicted. Where exactly are the boys going? Who will be taking care of them? Salome recognized that Jesus was pretty good at duplicating fish and bread, but Salome was concerned that someone would have to cook the fish in the first place. James and John were going on the road with Jesus and a group of men, and Salome knew, as we have already read, that it is not good for men to be without a suitable helper. Of course, James and John were with Jesus, and it was not good for Zebedee to be alone either, but Salome had to make a choice. So Salome chose to leave her husband and follow her sons. Now, I did not say that Salome and her husband divorced, but it is clear from biblical episodes that Salome chose to be with her sons rather than her husband from at least this point in Jesus' ministry to Resurrection Sunday. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they may come and anoint Jesus. And this situation is the cause of many divorces in our society. When the children become the focal point of the marriage, the marriage may only last 18 years after the birth of the last child. After that, the husband and wife may decide that they have grown apart. The sociological phenomenon known as the midlife crisis or the empty nest syndrome may cause the dissolution of the marriage just as Salome felt the pull to be a stage mother to her sons rather than a wife to her husband. And just as my mother came to my piano lessons when I was little to make sure that I was paying attention, Salome was with James and John listening to Jesus' teaching along with them. She heard a very wealthy man come up to Jesus to question him. Luke chapter 18, verse 18 tells us, Now a certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, 
Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was such a revolutionary teacher that the rich and powerful wanted to question him. In our last lesson, a lawyer questioned Jesus. This week, it's a political leader. But in both cases, Jesus referred them to the law of God. Luke chapter 18 verse 20 records that Jesus told the ruler, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Within the law of Moses, God gives us the moral guidelines for correct living. The answer to the question, what should I do, is always follow the commandments in the law of God. But the ruler postulated that his adherence to the law was complete. Luke chapter 18 verse 21 records, And the ruler said, All these things I have kept from my youth. The ruler was sure that he had fulfilled his obligation to God. But Jesus perceived in his spirit that the ruler's devotion to God was inhibited by the ruler's standard of living. So Jesus gave the ruler a prescription that would solve a problem that the ruler didn't even know that he had. In Luke chapter 18, verse 22 so when Jesus heard these things, he said to the ruler, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus said to the ruler, divest yourself of your standard of living. Come live the life of an evangelist and your eternal future will be bright. Now, Jesus' command to the ruler is not meant to be universal. Jesus does not call everyone. Out of all the disciples that were following, Jesus called 12 apostles. And as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he selected Peter, Andrew, James, and John, although there were others by the sea. But Jesus did call the ruler. Unfortunately, the ruler was not interested in a commitment of that magnitude. The ruler was used to the types of solutions that the scribes and Pharisees who love money proposed, which absolved the ruler of sin as long as he tithed according to the law of Moses. Jesus' solution was too radical for the ruler. As Luke chapter 18 verse 23 tells us, but when the ruler heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Jesus tells us in Mark 4, 19, And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And that was the case with the ruler. I'm reminded of the chicken that walked up to the pig and said, I know how we can make some money. We can start a breakfast restaurant. The pig replied, yeah, we could, but what are we going to serve? The chicken said, ham and eggs, of course. 
The pig said, my friend, you have a good idea, but I will have to decline. For you, ham and eggs just requires a contribution. But for me, it requires a total commitment. And the ruler was willing to make a contribution, even a substantial contribution to Jesus's program. But the ruler had no intention of making a total commitment. Now the ruler was not unique in his reticence, as Jesus told us in Luke chapter 18, verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the apostles asked Jesus how a rich man could turn from his possessions and give his all to be saved, Jesus responded in Luke chapter 18, verse 27. But Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Jesus described how God could make such a commitment possible in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And were it not for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of truth, all of us would be in the same boat as the ruler, sorrowfully declining to fulfill the requirements of Jesus. But Salome's ears perked up when Peter asked Jesus about the sacrifice that the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles to make. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 through 29, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Being with Jesus in life leads to a special reward in the resurrection. The apostles will be judges in places of honor in the kingdom. Of course, at this point in their ministry, they were under the tutelage and protection of Jesus. But the day was coming in which they would be on their own. They would be faced with challenges, of following the admonition of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to hostile pagan nations. But Salome, being a stage mother, did not concern herself with the challenges, but only with getting her sons in those top two spots on the roster. She heard Jesus say that the Holy Spirit would empower the apostles to do that which was necessary to successfully complete their assigned mission, but that there were 12 thrones to be had. Now, 12 thrones were sufficient for the 12 apostles, but Salome, the stage mother, 
knowing that her sons were the best among the apostles, wanted the best thrones for them. When Jesus did a miracle privately, as in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, Jesus took Salome's sons, James and John, into the room, along with Simon Peter. But Salome was concerned that Peter was in the mix. Peter had become the leader of the apostles. Peter spoke up, asked the questions, and generally demonstrated more leadership than James and John. So in Salome's mind, one of the two top spots was in danger. Just as last week we read that Martha did not want Mary sitting next to Jesus when Mary could be helping her, Salome did not want to see Peter sitting next to Jesus when her son James or her son John could be sitting there. And that is to be expected of a stage mother. Salome had that hormonal bond with James and John that made her decide to go on the road with them rather than stay at home with her own husband. Salome was not going to stand around and let anyone, including Peter, get one of the best seats while one of her boys had to sit farther away from Jesus. So Salome went to work. From the Harmony of the Gospels, our text, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, and Mark chapter 10, verse 35 says, Then the mother of James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus with her sons and knelt in front of him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. When getting her sons in the first position is on the line, Salome is willing to be as sweet and submissive to Jesus as she can be. And Jesus acknowledged Salome's sweetness by asking her for her request. As Matthew chapter 20 verse 21 records, And Jesus said to her, What do you wish? She said to Jesus, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Now, this is a presumptuous request. Salome has no knowledge of the evaluation method that is going to be used to fill the seats. She just wants her sons to have them. Salome is analogous to the man who was speeding down the street at 90 miles an hour when the police officer pulled him over. Sir, what is your hurry? asked the police officer. My wife is about to have a baby, replied the man. The police officer looked into the car and saw the obviously pregnant woman and found out the name of the hospital to which they were going. After taking the man's license and registration, the police officer said, okay, follow me. The police officer then turned on his siren and provided the man and his wife an escort to the hospital. The police officer called ahead and when they reached the hospital, there was an orderly with a wheelchair waiting outside for the woman. And as they were wheeling her inside, the police officer told the man, sir, here is your license, your registration, and your ticket for speeding. Why do I get a ticket, said the man. My wife was about to have a baby. 
but that's no excuse for endangering the public, said the police officer. You could have called for an ambulance, or you could have called the police department to escort you to the hospital, as I did. But you didn't have a siren on your car or any way to alert other drivers to get out of your way, and you could have caused a serious accident. So this is to remind you to think about something other than your own personal situation when you decide to speak. Salome's request is as presumptuous as the man who was speeding. She had no idea how God intended that those seats next to Jesus were to be allocated. All she was concerned about was that she wanted her sons in them. So Jesus gave Salome, James, and John some information. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 22 and 23, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? James and John said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. The cup that Jesus is about to drink is that of the crucifixion, and the baptism is the burial and death that will be the result. And Salome was certainly not aware that she was asking for a painful horrible death sentence for her sons. But that is a function of the lack of perspective that people have. As I mentioned earlier, some mothers get so caught up in their feelings for their child that they ignore or forsake their husband, as Salome was doing in this case. But the bond between mother and child is not intended to infringe on the marriage of either the mother or the child. As Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6 tells us, And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God has ordained that a person's primary relationship is supposed to be between themselves and their own spouse, not with their mother or their child. A child is supposed to bond to their own spouse and create their own family, hopefully without interference from their mother. Mothers with grown children have had their turn raising their children. After their child is grown and married, it is their child's turn to raise their own children. And while it is always good to pass wisdom down from generation to generation, the passing down of wisdom ought not be perceived as too intrusive, and the interaction to pass down wisdom ought not come at the expense 
of the primary relationship between husband and wife, which God ordains as sacrosanct. This episode also tells us that we are not the ultimate judges. Salome is not the one who could decide or even influence the decision as to who gets what seat because God makes that decision. I find it extremely interesting that the only person in the Bible that Jesus tells us is definitely saved is the criminal on the cross next to him who was not the person that most people would pick as the holiest fellow around. But we can rest assured of our heavenly status. John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And Jesus tells us in John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let us be assured of the historical truth of the Bible, of the accounts of Jesus Christ, how he suffered, bled, and died on Calvary's cross, and then rose physically from the dead. We have eternal life, because we continue to believe in that which the historical Jesus Christ has done for us. Our conduct is not worthy to assure us a place in heaven. In fact, our sinfulness makes us ineligible to be in heaven at all. But Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7 tells us, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we are saved by Jesus' kindness, God's love, and the Lord's grace. Let us be grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and resolve to do all that we can to serve his purposes by living lives of love that will display the influence of the Holy Spirit upon us, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved for one another. And that is our lesson for today.
Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson that you have given us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to not be presumptuous. That you would help us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But to think soberly as you have given to every man the measure of faith. Help us to have faith in your historical deeds, that which you did in your sacrifice on the cross. And help us to abide by the commandment that you have given us to love one another, even as you have loved us. For by this all will know that we are your disciples, because we have love for one another. Lord, now we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place. And then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.